Welcome to the SRI Corporate Cultures Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of SRI's Corporate Cultures Podcast. I'm your host, David Dayton, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Heyer. Dr. Heyer is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Brigham Young University and the coordinator for Asian Studies. His research focuses on China's foreign relations, and he's authored many articles on China's arms sales, territorial issues, and U.S.-China relations. He was the associate producer of Helen Foster Snow, Witness to Revolution, documentary movie in 2000, and From the Masses to the Masses, an artist in Mao's China in 2005. His book, The Pragmatic Dragon, was published in 2015 and discusses China's grand strategy and boundary settlement negotiations with its neighboring countries. I'm here to talk with Dr. Heyer today about the current situation and China's relationships with Russia, the Ukraine, and the United States. We discuss both what this might mean for Taiwan as well as what the future holds for op- for uh, business opportunities for foreigners getting back into China as well as what Dr. Heyer thinks the future holds for China as an international actor. On a personal note, I've known Dr. Heyer now for almost 30 years. He was a political science professor when I was an undergraduate and got me to read the book Chun Village. It changed my life. I went from being a pre-law major to an anthropology major and went on to study Thai anthropology and Chinese anthropology in graduate school and uh, met my wife in Asia. Had I not read that book and changed my major and changed my life, I would probably still be studying law or practicing law in some fuddy, stuffy, book-filled office uh, in the United States having never experienced Asia. So I'm grateful to him for that and for this conversation today. So without further ado, Dr. Eric Heyer on SRI's Corporate Cultures Podcast. To try to get some sense of, of how China fits into this mess right now, because, you know, yeah. you hear all this, China's in it for China, they're, they're doing the balancing act, let's mm-hmm. maintain relationships with like, not just the U.S., but the EU and India mm-hmm. and Russia and Ukraine and everybody. And so, you know, I just figured uh, I'd ask. China's in a bad place. Yeah. Uh, for this reason, um, you know, there's the famous Putin-Xi Jinping meeting mm-hmm. February 4th on, yeah. on, on the eve of the Olympics, come out with their big document, and this is a, this is a relationship without limits. And um, then the Olympics unfold, go pretty well, and then uh, the invasion of Ukraine starts. So the first question I ask is, what did Xi Jinping know and when did he know it? Yeah. And the question is, did Putin lie to Xi Jinping and say, no, we're not going to invade, don't worry about it? Or did he tell Xi Jinping, yeah, we are going to invade, but we'll wait till after the Olympics because we don't want to spoil that for you. Mm-hmm. Either way, Xi Jinping has been played. Yeah. Either way. So Xi Jinping, and there's some evidence that lower level officials... These might be people from anti-Xi Jinping factions or just lower level officials are saying, look at, she got played by Putin. Mm -hmm. The Russians snookered us diplomatically because now we're put in a position where uh, some people think we knew and we didn't say anything. Some people say we didn't know. Either Mm -hmm. way we lose. Either way we're played. Mm -hmm. Xi Jinping got played. 
And so then China tries to finesse this. Well, you know, we're not against Ukraine, but we're not against Russia. And part of that is they, they don't want to be against Russia because they do have this idea, what I call an ideological alliance. It's an anti-U.S. ideological yeah. alliance. It's an ideology of hate, there's, but it's, it's still a mili- an It's not a military alliance. Yeah. This is, there's some trade going on, but it's minimal mm-hmm. compared to the rest of the world. But it's, it's, it's basically a, an authoritarian alliance against Western liberal democracies. Both of them feel slighted. Both of them feel like they've been they boxed both, into a they corner. They both chafe under the dominance of American yeah. hegemony and America's hubris, I would say, in many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so so China doesn't want to lose that. Xi Jinping doesn't want to lose that. That's a personal relationship with Putin that he has. They don't want to lose that. But at the same time, you know, Ukraine was a very important state for China. Many people yeah. don't realize this. Ukraine is a major producer of, of agricultural commodities that China used. Ukraine was a conduit for technology that China needed. And I like to remind people that the Chinese aircraft carrier was originally yeah. a Ukrainian <laughs> aircraft carrier. So, I mean, China is in many ways intimately connected with the Ukrainian military industrial complex, which is derivative from the Soviets. Yeah. So that works well for the Chinese. So... China doesn't want to squander its relationship to Ukraine either, but if they if they back Ukraine, that's 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 mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. inherently anti-Russian. If they back only Russia, that that looks like you're backing everything that the Chinese stand against you: mm-hmm. violation of sovereignty, yeah. you know, yeah. manipulating other people. The history of, of claiming to be non-aligned, I mean, yeah, really remember, is hard know, the, to yeah. The keep Chinese have now. the five principles of peaceful coexistence: yeah. respecting other people's sovereignty, not intervening in their domestic politics, mm-hmm. you know. Negotiating differences and and, and 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 then having peaceful coexistence. Russia has violated every one of those. Yeah. So China is in a position where, well, do we stand on principle and condemn Russia, or do we kind of go with our national interest and 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 side with side with Russia and try to play Ukraine as best we can? And then they made these announcements. Oh, we're going to send some humanitarian aid to the Ukraine. What they they, they I think they 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 announced it. 1.752 million or something like that. The Ukrainians just the other day came out and said, "You got to be kidding me. We're being blo- we're being devastated here by 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 Russian bombs and, mm. and and missiles and stuff like this. And you guys are offering a piddly little humanitarian assistance. Get real. You're China. You mm. you don't you stand for more than that? And so the it kind of blew back in the Chinese face because they said, look, the Americans are giving us like 800 million and the Europeans are taking millions of refugees and the Americans and NATO are giving us hundreds of millions of dollars in military. And you, you were offering us, what, a couple of million humanitarian yeah. assistance and blankets and sleeping bags or something? So get real. This doesn't even, this doesn't even match what you think your status yeah. is. So, the, so it hasn't gone well for the Chinese in that way either. Um, there, there is a, a Chinese... Uh, YouTuber who's been in Ukraine reporting. Yeah, I've seen some of his stuff. Yeah, <laughs> saying you know this is what the re- this is what's really happening. Yeah. The Chinese and, and a certain certain segment of the Chinese population they kind of know what's going on and they realize that the the, the Chinese are trying to play both sides and be yeah. nice to both sides, but yet they are spewing out Russian propaganda all the yeah. time about the yeah. war. WeChat's and, just full of how I great think, Putin is I think and what he really is still themselves are just kind of going like, we're not buying this, man. So, I mean, I, I mean, I think it has had a serious impact upon Xi Jinping's credibility. Watch and understand how to avoid sanctions, how to get around things. 
are they learning from this experience? Are they figuring out that we can do something militarily or we can isolate Taiwan and we can survive? Or is it just um, they're you know, so integrated that they can't survive? Honestly, I haven't, I haven't <clears throat> thought about that question deeply. But my initial response would mm. be that while many countries survived sanctions, Syria, Iran, Russia has been devastated by these sanctions mm -hmm. in many ways. And so I think the Chinese realize that, okay, there's, they'll piddle along when it's Syria, Iran, but Russia's a big player. And so, bam, they hit them hard, especially because Russia just didn't, wasn't a bad actor. It actually invaded, invaded somebody else. And that invading <coughs> another country violates a fundamental norm of international relations. You don't invade other countries. Now, yeah, sure, Taiwan's not another country, right? But in the eyes of the world, Taiwan is another, another country. country. Yeah. And so the Chinese, I think, have realized that you no know, sanctions can hurt, and there's a tipping point at which, if you push too far, they may sanction you over Uyghurs in Xinjiang, they may sanction you over this and there, but if you actually take military moves against Taiwan, you really get sanctioned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, the Chinese have a lot of assets in the United States that can be frozen very quickly. Correct. A lot of bank accounts, a lot of, a lot of holdings and equities, and what if the United States freezes all those? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that and China, that, by the way, is not an oil exporting country. Correct. Yes, they're very dependent. They're the very only, dependent. The saving grace for Putin is he's got lots of oil that Europe mm -hmm. needs. Mm -hmm. China, China is a net oil importer. They need it. They don't export it. Yeah. Yeah. They need they need oil. They need food. So they we, need we access can, to shipping all, lanes. We can all live with with we can all live with the inexpensive clothes we buy at Walmart and the trinkets. Foxconn can always re, 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 reinvent themselves in Taiwan or another country and continue producing their iPhones and mm -hmm. laptops. So China, in many ways, is vulnerable, more, much more vulnerable than Russia is, just because it's integrated. So again, you know, the sort of the liberal internationals' view is that integration will Keep create peace. peace because it's too expensive to break it up. But if it does break, and it can break, it's super costly for integrated countries. Yeah. So what does that mean for China and all of its, you know, 2049 goals? You know, they've sworn up and down, Taiwan has to come back yeah, yeah, before yeah. 2049. You know, do they just take the risk that it's, that they're going to be able to do something? Because, I mean, the idea that Hong Kong was a success story that they could peddle to Taiwan, I mean, died <laughs> on the vine. That died right? on the vine. <laughs> the one country, two system uh, <laughs> formula doesn't really have much credibility. No, anymore, does no. It? Um, you know, this is always a debate. Uh, I forget, I don't remember his name. He's sort of a higher higher level U.S. military official. Several months ago, within the last year, said something. Well, you know, I think China plans to military go after Taiwan within the next five years. And people got all kind of nervous mm -hmm. about it. Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia, who is by the way a Chinese speaker, is now mm -hmm. the president of the Asian Society. He was he was reinterviewed just a few days ago by Bloomberg, and he says, No, 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 no. China at the earliest is late 2020s or in the 2030s mm -hmm. before they're going to move. They just simply aren't militarily prepared to do it. That was his assessment. Mm -hmm. So we got this wide, you know, 15, 20 year gap. Yeah. And, and be frankly, I don't know. This is just one of those unknowns. Yeah. <laughs> this is a known unknown. Correct. <laughs> we yeah. don't know when the Chinese are going to move. We don't know what Xi Jinping's motivation is. The theory is we that it probably the will, but we don't we know, know when. We don't know what the PLA, PLA pressure is to yeah. do something about it. The, how, how, how much pressure is there in the PLA saying, look, we've waited long enough, we, we've got to do this, we can't wait any longer. 
There's a good uh, distraction going on that, right now. Yeah, we know <laughs> that there's a tipping point, but we don't know where that tipping point is. And we know that there was a tipping point in 62 and the Indians and the Chinese hit the Indians hard. Mm-hmm. We know that there was a tipping point in 79 in Vietnam and they hit yeah. them hard. Mm-hmm. We know that back in 1950 there was a tipping point in, in Korea and they yeah. came in big yeah. time. So what what is that tipping point? I, I, I don't think we... Yeah. I don't think we know. There may be somebody deep in the intelligence someplace that's heard some Chinese cable, but... Uh, I just don't think we know. So this, the question then becomes, how do we deal with the, the present situation? Yeah. Do we continue U.S. policy of ambiguity that, well, we will sell arms to Taiwan, and if push comes to shove, maybe we will do something, and that will deter the Chinese because there's that big question mark. What will the Americans do? That's yeah. enough of a deterrence. We don't want to take them on. Uh, it's also... You know, there's the other side of that. that. It doesn't give the Taiwanese any confidence in declaring independence because we might not back them. Our, yeah. our official policy is no unilateral yeah. change in the status quo. Yeah. And there's they, no Taiwan independence or no invasion. And Taiwan's really been careful about that, saying, hey, we don't need to be independent. We're already yeah, independent. We're, we, we're, we're, we're already our own yeah, country. What, else, what would we get by, by yeah. flying a different flag? Yeah. Um, you know, by the way, their passport's already changed. You know, you know yeah. on their passports, it has, it has Taiwan in in big letters, uh-huh. and then in small letters, Republic of China. Meanwhile, yeah, yeah. in Chinese. Yeah. Um, what does it mean for Japan, who said, I mean, they, they came out publicly this last year and said, we'll back Taiwan. Well, we'll, we'll come to their Japan, defense. I don't you know, know what the wording was, but. we The U.S. has continued to put pressure on Japan to play a more active mm-hmm. role in in East Asia, picking up some of the burden of defense. And, and over the years, we've we've got the Japanese to extend their, their military reach out about a thousand miles, mm-hmm. their naval facility. Yeah. And that, that, that does include Taiwan. So if, if China were to attack Taiwan, can the Japanese legitimately interpret this as, 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 as an aggressive move and they therefore have the constitutional right to defend mm-hmm. against and, then, and therefore participate with the Americans? You know, I don't think the Japanese would be on the ground shooting. There's not going to be no boots on the ground, but but logistical sure. logistical support mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. I think we can confidently expect that from Japan because they're still a very strong. They're still a very pro Taiwan group in yeah. Japan uh, for for historical reasons, for nostalgic reasons about colonialism, uh, for anti China reasons. Yeah. And and so I don't think you can discount that. And Japan has become a much more conservative place, and China is enemy number one now. Yeah. So um, they, I think they would feel some obligation to back the United States if the United States decided to move. Uh, and no one was paying any attention, but Japan backed us in Korea in a big way, mm-hmm. <laughs> too. Uh, what so, is, what does this mean for you know? business people that are trying to deal with and work out China. I mean, it's been really difficult, obviously, with COVID to even get in and out. I've yeah. got friends that I talk to that are there that, you know, have said basically, you know, it's back to normal. Um, but but international travel is strictly off, the, yeah, you know, and, and, strictly and out of the Well, yeah, well, and Shenzhen was shut down last week. Yeah. But, um, you know, except for really like the 21-day international quarantine for coming back into China. Yeah. A lot of Chinese, I think, are ready to travel. A lot of foreigners are yeah. ready to go back in and out I, again. But you know, I think our mentality is we're done with this. Yeah. We're, COVID's, we're done. The rest of us we are. We want to move forward. <laughs> um, the Chinese are a little bit more conservative about it, and they have to be because they, the way they... They don't have hospital in, capacity. In, in terms of their public health 
they looked impressive to begin with, with the way they shut it down. Mm. But now, just a zero COVID policy doesn't seem to be working. You've got to get some kind of herd immunity and vaccination yeah. going and yeah. deal with it. So, uh, so China's public policy hasn't looked as good as it did two years ago when we looked so bad, when everybody was dying in mm -hmm. New York and stuff. But, but I'm not a public health person, so <laughs> let me just say that I think the Chinese desperately do not, do not want to see decoupling. Uh, yeah. During the Trump administration, there was this, and now this is a bipartisan. You know, it's not yeah, yeah, Trump. it hasn't gotten any better bipartisan. under Biden. There's this Biden. whole dialogue about, about decoupling from China. Mm -hmm. Let's bring American manufacturers back home. Uh, let's bring all of, our, all of our production back home. There's not only an economic reason to do so, there's also a national security reason to do so. I mean, you know, I was just, I was just struck by the fact that when COVID started and everybody, the, the mandate was everybody has to wear masks. And the realization that, wait a minute, there's not a single manufacturer of masks in the United States. They all offshore to China. Yeah. And so even in the basics, yeah. even in ventilators, we, we don't have this stuff here. Yeah. So, so I think Americans generally woke up to the idea and business and government that, look, you can't offshore everything. You can't allow the liberal free market to dictate all policy and stockholders to dictate all decisions because there are some bottom lines here in terms of preserving capacity in the United States that we need. So I think the mood has changed. Yeah. And that has led some, some traction to the idea of decoupling. I don't think the Chinese want to decouple. I don't think American no. businesses either do either. Uh, COVID's also led to, I've talked to a number of businessmen, and they've said, practically speaking, we just can't, we just can't count on China right now. Right? We have to go to Mexico. Yeah. We have to be going to South America right now, simply because we still have to do business. We still have to have mm -hmm. options. And right now, we can't, for either COVID reasons or logistical shipping reasons, or we're not, we can't get stuff. So we've got well, to find another option. You know, I'm, I'm not a businessman, and I'm sure they're sitting down and they're doing all their calculations. The cost of getting, getting boxes on boats in China and off the, off, off the boat in Long Beach and on the train or the truck yeah. around the other is is incredibly costly and time-consuming. And sometimes in some businesses, just this is my observation, like H&M and mm -hmm. the Gap, this sort, of, this sort of quick turnaround style, you don't sell peop a peop person a piece of expensive clothing, you sell them a bunch of cheap clothing mm -hmm. and you change it every week. Well, you know, getting that designed in here, getting it produced in China, getting it in a box on a boat to Long Beach and distribute, we realize that the supply chain is breaking down. Yeah. And so I think there's also some economic incentives for businesses yeah. to, to, to onshore production and, and, and make it all in-house. But, but nevertheless, still China still stands out as one of the most efficient, yeah. low-cost producers in the world. They've been at this for 40 years now. This is not yeah. 1978. This is not the first economic zone in Shenzhen. Yeah. This is... You you send them the you send them the the the, the technical details, yeah. and they've got it for you. Yeah. They've got it made for you yeah. in the next day, and it's good and high quality. Well, I did you know I did const uh, um, production manufacturing and uh, management in China for fifteen years, mm -hmm. and whenever we'd have clients say, "Hey, we want to move to Thailand," we'd say, "Okay, but you have to think of a couple of different options." And one of the things that makes China so great isn't just that they can do things cheap and that they can do things well, but that they have all of the other supporting resources that surround that. Yeah. And Thailand can do one thing really well or two things really well, but it doesn't have all the supporting resources. Right. And we'd still have to buy yeah. stuff from China and then ship it to Thailand. Well, or get, Vietnam know, was the same story. Yeah, th these people just need to go to Dongguan once. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and realize that, oh, crap. Yeah. This place is a mega manufacturing shop. Everybody's networked. 
Yep. This piece from there, this piece from there is flowing into here. It's, it's assembled. It's on the boat. It's out. That's an amazingly efficient system that cannot be replaced nope. very quickly at all. And so the idea of if decoupling is just, it doesn't work yeah. completely. I understand the notions of decoupling. I understand some national security reasons for some decoupling. But in the scheme of things, we are such an integrated world and there's such a complex supply chain that, that it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we know how the supply chain works. When the when the truckers block the bridge between yeah. <laughs> coming into Ambassador Bridge from Ontario to Detroit, we know what happens to the automobile. Yeah, I mean, we're all suffering from this. Uh, I, I I I guess I don't know. I think business people will probably think more carefully, and those supply chain people will probably do some good research and some analysis. How do we how do we make the supply chain a little bit more sturdy, a little bit more durable, a little yeah. less fickle? Uh, but 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 I'm not a I, I'm a fan's not the right word. I'm not I'm not a proponent of decoupling, and I'm not someone who thinks that's the way we need to go. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's workable. Yeah. I think we are where we are, and we're in a very we're in a very integrated world, and we need to de- learn how to deal with that politically, economically, socially, culturally, and work this. And we're in a bad place right now between U.S. and China. Yeah. Uh, relations Communications have been, are really relations poor. Relations have not been this bad for yeah. decades. Yeah. Uh, do you see it improving or do you see it getting worse? I don't see the Biden administration doing the, well, really anything. But Biden hasn't done anything. Yeah, I mean, no, no. Uh, this, this, this every know, few month phone call thing is a joke. Yeah, first of all, let me say this wasn't all Trump's fault. This yeah. was building up. Correct. And Trump uh, pushed it and did some kind of crazy things. Mm-hmm. But he got us where we are, and Biden hasn't backed it off. Mm-hmm. Backed off at all. And hasn't improved it either. And it hasn't improved. Uh, I don't know what the USTR is doing these days. Um, I've forgotten her name. She's a tough woman. She's from that runs the USTR. She's Chinese. Forget her name. She, you know, you don't hear much from her. I don't know what mm-hmm. she's doing. So in other words, I see no movement, and I don't see any movement in China either. I think I see they're whipping up nationalism, become more rigid, and. Everybody's got their backup, and no one's willing to back down. And so I think, I think the situation we're in now is going to continue f- for some time. Now, that's the cloud. Here's the bright side on the other side of the cloud. Um, remember the bad old days in the 60s between, 60s between U.S. and China, yeah. and the good old days between Russia and China? Mm-hmm. Those came crashing. That didn't to last very long. <laughs> and uh, by the end of the sixties, we in China were getting getting along really well. Mm-hmm. In the seventies, we were getting along really great. In the eighties, things were going pretty well. Even after Tiananmen, things continued to go pretty well. Just a well. couple of years were poor. Yeah, after that. Um, was good. So you know, just because we're in this situation now doesn't mean we're in this situation forever. Mm-hmm. These are cyclical. Yeah. I think China. The has, dynamics of Russia and Taiwan could really change the relationship. Yeah. Both there's, some, there's, some, yeah. there's some short-term dynamical things you're concerned about, Taiwan, Russia. But long-term, I think China's interests are to have good relations with the United States. Our long-term yeah. interests are to have good relationship with China. The two great powers, the two great economic giants. I mean, this is not the Cold War. Are both of us willing to share that status as two great powers? Um, I, I, and I'm not an idealist. I'm not, I'm not a liberal idealist. I'm more of a realist. But I think we have to learn how to do it. Yeah. Now, so it's important to point out, people think, oh, it's the new Cold War. No, and the Chinese love to say it, but it's not. Soviet Union was never an economic superpower. It was a military superpower. And we were an economic and a military superpower, but we had these two superpowers. China is both 
becoming a military superpower and it's definitely an economic yeah. superpower. So they are they are more on par with the United States. The Russia was never on Soviet was never on par with the United States. And we deterred each other militarily, so there wasn't a war. Little kind of proxy mm-hmm. wars ever. With China and the United States, I think the stakes are so high that both there in a sense there's not just it's not nuclear mad, mutual assured destruction, it's economic mutual mad. assured destruction. So there's this mm-hmm. large mad thing going on here that we have to learn how to to we, we, we deal through. We are in what, in international we call the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. If we don't cooperate, we all lose. If we cooperate, we can all win. We're not gonna win everything we want, but we're all winners, and the payoffs are not, are not always equal. Some win more than others. We win now, they win later, they win later, we win, we don't win later, and we learn how to deal with this. I think that's where we're headed. I think that's where we, not only that's where we do, I think that's where we have to go, but I think that's where we are headed because of our own national interests, yeah. our own economic yeah. interests. Let, let me ask you one last question then. Where do you think China's headed? They've got demographic issues. There's all this talk about yeah. debt issues. Um, who knows how long Xi Jinping's going to stick around <laughs> right now, right? So with yeah. nationalism going on, where where is China headed then? You know... Where do you see it in five I, or ten? I think or China's headed in a bad direction 20 right years, now. Let me yeah. be honest. China's headed in a bad direction for many reasons right now. But China's been headed in a bad direction many for times in the time. past. I mean, you know, it's the Great Leap Forward. It's the anti-rightist movement in the mid-50s. It's the Great Leap Forward in the late-50s. It's the Cultural Revolution in the mid-60s. China's been headed in a bad direction many times. And recovered. And one thing is so... China has a, the ability to sit down and think about it, reassess what's going on, and reinvent itself. Yeah. The Communist Party has reinvented itself. So, I mean... How many times have they been written off? They were written yeah. off in 1927. They were written off in 1935. They were written off in 1945. I remember people, I remember foreigners in China in 1997 talking about the turnover of Hong Kong, saying specifically, Hong Kong's going to change the mainland. This is it. This is yeah, the yeah, end of communist is China. Yeah, this is the end of it. And they've, and they've, Hong Kong's now gone. And then even think of, think of the collapse of communism globally yeah. in 1990, 1991. You know, China was confronted with an ideological challenge. There's, there. Marxism and Lenin is, is bankrupt. Mm-hmm. The, only, the only people left are like Cuba and North Korea, and do, we're not that. And so they re, reinvented themselves, and they reinvented themselves as, as a nationalistic party. Mm-hmm. We, we saved China from the Japanese imperials. We, 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 we delivered China to the way it is today with the enormous economic you know, growth yeah. and stuff. We, we're the party, we delivered this. Yeah. So the party is a party which is not shackled by ideological no. fixations. It's not shackled by, by its Communist Party nature. It reinvents itself all the time. So, I, I, so I the just, Xi thing is really I'm, interesting yeah, in that, I'm right? Because he seems to be much more ideological. He is. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to discount the Chinese Communist gotcha. Party's ability to reinvent itself. And yeah. reinvention could be the end of Xi Jinping. Yeah. It was the end of Mao. Mm-hmm. It was Deng. Yeah. <laughs> it could be the end of Xi Jinping and somebody else. Um, I don't know what the business community in China is saying. I don't know what the state-owned enterprises are saying. You know, you hear private enterprises have got to be at least concerned, if not scared. I know the academic community is concerned. Yep. They're not happy with it. Uh, uh, and you hear these faint echoes of Maoism and stuff like that. And, and the Chinese have got to know that that didn't go well. So you just don't know what the opposition to Xi Jinping is. I mean, you know, yep. he could have a heart attack tomorrow. Uh, he could be over. He could be pushed out of office in, in, at the end of this year, early next year. 
there could be some, you know, there's, you know, China is more, a more, more China, unknowns. As I tell people, China is a single party dictatorship, is a single communist party dictatorship. But within that party, there are multiple factions, factions, and they're yeah. always fighting with each other. And so don't discount those factions that see Xi Jinping as turning himself into chairman of everything and going in the wrong direction in many ways, picking fights that don't need to be picked. Yeah. Uh, having too, too close of a personal relationship with Putin, which is never a good idea. Xi Jinping needs to be reminded that the fundamental principle in international relations is you do not have permanent friends, you have permanent interests, and you better pursue your interests. Mao Zedong waked up, woke up to that idea. Deng Xiaoping pursued that idea. And, 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 and so maybe there are people pushing up again, pushing Xi Jinping to move in a different direction, or, 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 or that would be the end of Xi Jinping. Yeah. You just don't know. Yeah. Those are, those are the known unknowns. Yeah, those are the known unknowns. <laughs> well, that, that's awesome. Hey, thank you so much. Sure. I really appreciate that. I mean, you've got so much of an incredible, historically informed perspective. I really appreciate it. And, and your, your friendship and your help to me personally through the years has been fantastic. It's been great to so watch thank you. you so it's much. It's been great to watch your, your life and family career unfold. Thank you for joining us for another episode of SRI's Corporate Cultures podcast. And my special gratitude and appreciation to Dr. Heyer for his insights into China's international relations and his personal attention that he's given me uh, across three decades now. If you'd like more information on SRI, you can look us up on Silk Road International, silkroadintl.net online. You can contact me directly at david at silkroadintl.net. And we hope to have you with us next time for our next episode of SRI's Corporate Cultures Podcast. Thanks and goodbye.